All right, well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25? We are going through the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday morning here at Calvary, if you're new with us. And we find ourselves in Matthew 25 this morning. In fact, we'll finish it. And can I say this for the third and final time? Matthew 25 contains a teaching that Jesus began to give his disciples actually in chapter 24. And that was in response to the question they asked him, what are going to be the signs that will precede your coming? Because he told them they were, he was going away and at the end of chapter 23. So they want to know, well, what are going to be the signs that your return is near? And so from verses 4 to 28 of Matthew 24, he lays out the signs for them, these things that will precede his second coming. Of course, then culminating in his return to the earth with power and great glory, as he talked about in verses 29 to 31. And then from there, as I have said before, he proceeded to give them a series of admonitions and warnings in parable form that stressed the importance of being ready for his coming. In chapter 25, Jesus concludes his teaching by adding three more parables that warn his followers to watch and be ready for his return. The parable of the wise and foolish virgins, verses 1 to 13. The parable of the talents, verses 14 to 30, which we studied last week. And then the parable of the separation of the sheep and the goats, found in verses 31 to 46. Now, whereas the parable of the ten virgins stressed the importance, the importance of watching for the Lord's return, the parable of the talents stresses that our readiness isn't just to be passive waiting but really faithful serving as we are watching for the Lord's return. Now, that brings us to the third and final parable, which actually deals with what he's going to do when he comes. In verse 31 we read, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Now, in this parable, we have what is called the judgment of the nations. You see it there in verse 32. And this judgment is to be differentiated from the judgment seat of Christ and then the great white throne judgment. The judgment seat of Christ, uh, as spoken of in 1 Corinthians 3, takes place immediately after the rapture of the church. So the church is raptured up into heaven. And immediately, as we stand before the Lord as his people, Christians standing before the Lord Jesus, he will evaluate our service to him and pass out our rewards based on how faithful we were in doing whatever it was he gave us to do while on the earth. The great white throne judgment, well, that will take place directly after the millennial kingdom. And this is a judgment that will be directed exclusively at unbelievers as recorded in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. These will be resurrected out of Hades, that temporary place of incarceration where all the dead who have not received Christ are at this moment, and all the dead who have, will not receive Christ in the future, they will go into Hades, a temporary place of incarceration. But at the great white throne judgment, they're resurrected and they stand before Jesus and are judged according to their works. See, here it is. They didn't want grace. They didn't want the gospel of grace that was going to save them purely by the work Jesus did. No, no, no. I think I can get to heaven by my good works. Well, no, they couldn't. And now they're going to be judged according to their works. And 
Of course, their degree of punishment in hell will be determined at this time, after which they will be cast into the lake of fire, which is hell. Now, the judgment of the nations takes place. And I hope I'm not confusing you guys. There's a lot of judgment here, all right? But the judgment of the nations takes place on earth immediately after Jesus comes at his second coming. Before, now, before he sets up his millennial kingdom. So he comes to the earth, second coming. Before he sets up his millennial kingdom, we will have the judgment of the nations. This is clearly demonstrated in verse 31 of Matthew 25, which says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him. Now, guys, this parable corresponds to another one that we've already studied. It comes out of Matthew 13. I'd like you to turn to it quickly. Matthew 13, starting in verse 47. Of course, Matthew 13 contains seven kingdom parables. And this is the culmination of those seven, just like the one we're studying is the culmination of the ones he gave in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 5. But Jesus said, Matthew 13, verse 47, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full they drew to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, as Jesus said here in this parable, he talked about the end of the age. And as we have said before, he's using it in the Jewish sense. What do you mean? Well, the Jews divided all of human history into two parts. This present evil age of man's rebellion, where man was governing himself, and we all know how well that's going. But this present evil age was started in the Garden of Eden with the rebellion of Adam and Eve, and will continue all the way till Messiah comes. The Jews saw that period of time as this present evil age of man's rebellion. But this present evil age will end when Messiah comes. And he will begin a glorious new age, the kingdom age, where he will reign from Jerusalem over the whole earth and bring about to the earth a kingdom of love and peace and joy and true righteousness for all mankind. That's the kingdom age that's coming. And so the end of this age, as Jesus uses it here in Matthew 13, is a reference by him to the end of the tribulation period, which will officially end with his second coming, followed then by the start of the kingdom age. He says the angels will separate the wicked from among the just. And so when Jesus returns at his second coming to establish his kingdom on the earth, the first order of business will be to send his angels out across the entire planet. And they will gather all the remaining people, like fishermen on the Sea of Galilee gathered fish, when they used a great dragnet. They had several ways of fishing. One of them was to use a giant dragnet, sometimes a half a mile long. And they would pull it between two boats, starting from deep water into the shallow and into the shore. And you can imagine it would just, everything would be gathered into it. You had tree branches and seaweed, and you had good fish that were edible and some bad fish that were not edible. They would come to the shore and they would gather the good fish into baskets, take them to market, the bad fish they would discard. Well, Jesus is using this imagery, something very familiar to them, to explain what's going to happen when he comes. And the angels are sent out, okay? He said, uh, he's telling us that at that time, all the people who are still alive on the earth, remember now, this is after the Great Tribulation period. Uh, You read Revelation 6 to 19, 
And you can see that all of these judgments are going to decimate uh, the population on planet Earth. I don't know how many are going to be left. It's not going to be a lot, though. But whoever is left, they're going to be gathered by the angels to Jerusalem. And there the righteous will be separated from the wicked. Now, this judgment will take a little time before the kingdom age can officially begin. And this was spoken of, I think this is interesting, I think you might want to turn to Daniel 12. Let's look at this. It was spoken of in the book of Daniel. And I don't mean to confuse with a lot of numbers today. You can go on our website uh, tomorrow and pull down the notes. I'll have them up there. You can copy those and read them over again. But listen to what the angel tells Daniel is going to happen. Daniel 12, starting in verse 11. He says, From the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335th days. <laughs> now, if you've ever read this in Daniel, and I hope you have, you're wondering, what does that mean? Notice the angel said that there are going to be 1,290 days that will happen starting from the time when the daily sacrifice is taken away or stopped and the abomination of desolation is set up. Uh, Jesus talked about that in Matthew 24, verse 15. That's when the Antichrist goes into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And he stops the sacrifice to the true and living God, puts an image of himself in the Holy of Holies, and now demands to be worshipped as God. Paul talked about that in 2 Thessalonians 2 also. But here's the thing. Daniel says there's going to be 1,290 days from when he does that to what? Well, we know from other places in the New Testament it says clearly that from the time the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies until the second coming is 1,260 days. But Daniel mentions 30 days more than that, 1,290 days. Interesting. And furthermore, a blessing is pronounced on the one who makes it to the end of the 1,335th day. It's an additional 45 days after the 1,290. So we've got 75 days now. From the time Jesus returns to the official start of the kingdom, a 30-day period and then a 45-day period. How do you explain this? Well, although Daniel doesn't explain it, or the angel talking to Daniel doesn't explain these two extra periods of time, the 30 days and the 45 days, most evangelical scholars believe that between the second coming and the start of the kingdom age, a couple of judgments have to take place. The first one is the judgment of the nations we're studying about right now in Matthew 25. And the second one is the judgment of Israel, which seems to be spoken of in Ezekiel 20, verses 34 to 38. And these two judgments could account for the extra 75 days. These great judgments are designed to purge the earth from all the remaining unbelievers, both Jews and Gentiles, who followed the Antichrist, took his mark on their foreheads or right hands, and uh, worshipped him. Although this is going to be handled quickly, it's going to require some time. By the 1335th day, or 75 days after Jesus returns to the planet Earth, these great judgments will have been accomplished, and the Millennial Kingdom will officially begin. Those who make it to the 1335th day of this period 
are obviously those who have been judged worthy to enter the kingdom. In other words, true believers in Christ. Hence, they are called blessed. Now, let's look at this judgment as described by the Lord Jesus in Matthew 25. Now, let's pick it up in verse 31 again. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right hand, Come you, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did, not, you did not take me in, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger, or naked or sick or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Now, it's important to notice that Jesus mentioned three groups in this parable. Sheep, goats, and then those whom he calls my brethren. Now, my interpretation, okay, there's others who have different interpretations. Let me tell you what I think the Lord's saying here. I believe the first two groups, the sheep and goats, refer to, listen, Gentiles who will be alive on the earth when Jesus returns at his second coming. The sheep represent believing Gentiles. And the goats represent unbelieving Gentiles. The third group, Jesus' brethren, I believe is a reference to faithful Jewish believers in Christ who will be persecuted unmercifully by the Antichrist and his followers during the tribulation period. These could be, in fact, a reference specifically to the 144,000 Jewish believers in Christ who become powerful evangelists during the tribulation period for the Lord Jesus as is talked about in Revelation chapter 7 and 14. These, of course, will not receive the mark of the Antichrist on their forehead or right hand. And that's spoken of in Revelation 13, verses 16 and 17. But they will not receive the Antichrist mark, which means they will not be able to buy or sell. How then will they survive? Well, Jesus tells us here in this parable. He tells that they're going to survive through the loving kindness of Gentile believers in Christ who will care for them during this time, much like Christians cared for the Jews during World War II. In fact, if you've ever read uh, Corey Ten Boom's book, The Hiding Place, talked about her, how her family uh, were very strong Christians during World War II, and they hid Jews from the Nazis. They eventually were found out and uh, went to concentration camps themselves. 
but uh, we see how godly Christians helped the Jews during World War II. It's going to be the same way in the tribulation period. Those who will get saved, as Gentiles will get saved, they will become those who will help these Jewish believers who will be persecuted uh, primarily, although not exclusively, during the tribulation period. Now, when we say this judgment is the judgment of the nations, I want you to understand something. We're not saying that Jesus will judge America, Germany, Italy, Japan, China, etc. at this time. Only individuals within these nations. One of our founding fathers said, and I was looking for the quote, I couldn't find it, but I had it in another sermon I did, but one of our founding fathers said that nations can't be judged and sent to hell. Only people within those nations. And he said, God judges nations here on earth with national calamities like famine, pestilence, drought, natural disasters, financial ruin, and defeat at the hands of their enemies. That's how God deals with nations on the earth. This is not the judgment of nations as a whole, but of individuals within those nations, listen, who often act together in defying God's commandments and persecuting his people. That's why they are brought to God as a group, as groups, but judged individually. Because we have the responsibility as a nation to use our freedom to elect godly people into office. We have a, a, have a responsibility to make sure that we support those who support godly legislation, that we take the time to vote, that, you know, we, we do these things. We do the things that we are able to do. There's a lot of people in this country who don't really care what evil laws are passed as long as it doesn't affect them directly. So God will gather these nations and they will come before him individually to be judged and answer for themselves. The word nation there in verse 32, the nations, is the Greek word ethnos. We get our English word ethnic from that Greek word. An ethnic group is defined as those people who share a common ancestry, cultural heritage, homeland, or language. And again, this is in this context, it's referring to Gentile ethnic groups. Now, here's the big problem with this parable, okay? Here's the big problem. Not that it's a problem. Jesus didn't give us any problems. We just have a problem understanding what he was saying. The problem that immediately arises when we read this parable is that Jesus seems to be saying that these people, the goats, will be judged and sent to hell because they didn't treat Jesus' brethren with kindness during the tribulation period. And that the others, the sheep, will be saved based on their kindness or their good works toward Jesus' brethren. However, we know that that can't be the lesson Jesus is teaching here because no one, listen, no one, has ever been saved in the history of the world based on their good works. In the Old Testament, people were saved by faith. Genesis 15, verse 6 tells us that. And of course, the New Testament says people continue to be saved by their faith in Jesus Christ alone, something that Paul made abundantly clear in many places, but not the least of which was Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, where Paul says, For, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. The salvation is a total gift from God, not the result of our good works, lest any should boast. All right, then why, if that's all true and we know it is, then why did Jesus seem to be linking the salvation of the sheep to their good works? Listen to me. Because saving faith and good works are always linked together in Scripture. As Paul talked about how we're saved by grace 
through faith apart from works in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, he goes right into verse 10 where he says, For we are his workmanship, listen, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, beforehand, that we should walk in them. It goes along with Jesus, with what Jesus just said in Matthew 25, verse 34. He says, Then the kingdom, excuse me, then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, what? Inherit. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from when? The foundation of the world. You don't earn an inheritance. An inheritance is bestowed by the father upon his children. We don't earn heaven. It's bestowed upon us when you give your heart to Christ are made a child of God. We have an inheritance now. And we don't work to earn it. It's given to us because of our relationship with the Father. We are now his children. Matthew 25 is not talking about earning anything, although it comes across that way, as you just read it quickly. Actually, guys, this touches on a subject that I'm not going to go into in detail today. We could spend months. And I know some of you are afraid I might do that, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Uh, but it touches on a subject, the subject of predestination. A subject that Paul opened the book of Ephesians with. Turn to chapter 1. And notice how similar the language. The same Holy Spirit speaking through the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 25 was speaking through Paul in Ephesians 1. Notice the language and how it dovetails with what Jesus said in chapter 25, verse 34 of Matthew's gospel. And now Paul is like picking up on those very concepts. Because in Matthew 25, verse 34, he talked about, Come, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 1, starting in verse 4. Just as he chose, it's talking about us now who are Christians. Just as he chose, the Greek word could also be translated elected, and is translated elected or election in different parts of the New Testament. Just as he chose us in him before, listen, the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. And again, Jesus said, Come now, you blessed, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he talks here in Ephesians, Paul does, about having been predestined to this inheritance as children of God adopted. Again, getting into the idea that inheritance is not earned, it's received by those who are the children of the Father. But to predestine, guys, simply means to predetermine, to predetermine someone's destiny. The Bible says, people say to me, do you believe in predestination? Of course. Of course, this is the Bible. How do you deny it? The real question is, based on what? Based on what? Well, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 verse 2, that God elected or chose us according to his foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. Now, that's a Greek word that simply means knowledge known beforehand. Okay? Knowledge known beforehand. Who knows the future perfectly? God Almighty, who says, only I know the end from the beginning. So God know, knew everything before he even created anything. He knew every one of us. In eternity past, God knew according to his foreknowledge, who would receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. 
And based on it, he predestined, and I know that the Calvinists go absolutely berserk when I teach this, because um, they just believe it was total flat-out sovereignty. Uh, it's just that, you know, God knew he was going to create 100 billion people throughout the course of human history and said, well, you folks are going to hell, you folks are going to heaven, that's the way it's going to be. I, I don't see it that way. I don't see it that way, all right? No, nobody can come to the Father unless the Holy Spirit draws them. True. But I believe, as Jesus said, when I am lifted up, the Father will draw all people to himself. Not just the elect, all people. And then we decide whether we're going to respond to the call of God and receive Christ or not. I firmly believe in free will. So based on the fact that God knew the future, God knew all of us before he ever created us, he knew every one of us that would receive Jesus when the gospel was presented. And based on that, he predetermined our destiny, which means at that time, and we're going back now dovetailing with what Jesus said in Matthew 25. At that time, a place was made for us in his future kingdom. And God, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 verse 10, ordained the works we would do for him after we were saved. These works wouldn't earn us our salvation, but they would be the evidence of our salvation. Or in other words, the fruit of our relationship with Jesus. When you're connected to Jesus, like he said in John 15, a branch is connected to the trunk. The fruit just is the evidence that there's a real connection there. Just like the good works doesn't save me, but there, it's evidence that there's a real connection that I have with Jesus Christ. And didn't Jesus say, by your, their fruit, you will know them? By their fruit, fruit of the Spirit primarily. And that, guys, is exactly what I believe Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 25, when he seems to be saying that some people are saved by their good works and others are condemned to hell by a lack of good works, their good works or the lack thereof, listen, are simply the outward evidence of whether or not they have saving faith in their hearts. And that's exactly what James said in James 2. I mean, uh, Martin Luther rejected the book of James as being non-canonical, uninspired, because it seems like James was teaching salvation by works. And James was not teaching salvation by works. He was teaching a salvation that works. This is what Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and then 10. When you're saved, we're saved unto good works. God's prepared them that we walk in them. He's given us then a ministry to complete. And the good works bear witness. Look, remember before you got saved? How many good works did you have for God then? How many times did you go to church, read your Bible, pray, and so on? So, I mean, witness and so on and so forth. How much fruit did you bear for the kingdom of God before you were saved? Nada. Okay? But now that you're saved, the Spirit of God is inside of us. And we do these things not because we're trying to earn something, because we love to be with the Lord's people. We love to study His Word and pray and evangelize and, and, and allow Him to, to live His life through us to bear the fruit. This is all an evidence that we are connected to Christ. I mean, I think it was Spurgeon who said, we are, we are convinced that a man is saved by grace alone, but we all are also just as convinced, by faith alone, I should say, but we are also just as convinced, Spurgeon said, that the kind of faith that saves a man is never really alone. That's right, because we are saved unto good works, which God prepared beforehand what, in eternity past when he knew us and knew that we would receive Christ. He predestined our destiny. He gave us a place in the kingdom that would be waiting for us, an inheritance that would be undefiled and, and would never fade away. And he also prepared at that time the works that we would do for his name. 
on the earth. Now the fact, guys, the fact in this parable that the believers of the sheep are surprised by knowing, excuse me, are surprised that by showing kindness to the Jews during this time, they actually showed kindness to the Lord Jesus. They're surprised, aren't they? Lord, when did we see you naked and clothe you and hungry and feed you and sick and in prison and visit you? They're surprised, which tells me they weren't doing it for rewards. They were doing it out of sacrificial love. And by the way, they will, because we're talking about a future generation, they will take their lives into their own hands at that time when the world hates the Jews, when the world under the Antichrist is persecuting the Jews like no one else, and believers step up to feed them, to clothe them, to invite them into their homes, to visit them in prison and in the hospitals, taking their own life into their hands, well, it says to me that these people are manifesting true faith, a true relationship with Jesus. And likewise, the unbelievers of the goats are shocked that by not showing the Jews kindness during this terrible period of suffering and persecution that the Jewish people will go through under the Antichrist, they're shocked that by not showing the Jews kindness was tantamount, as Jesus says to them, was tantamount in not showing kindness to Jesus personally. It indicates to me that these folks were completely consumed with their own personal safety and well-being, a definite sign of an unsaved person. Listen, this is important even though they might have thought of themselves as Christians. Do you see that in the parable? The goats seem to have thought of themselves as believers. They said, Lord, when did we? Sounds like they knew him as Lord, but didn't really know him. You know, Erwin Lutzer in his book, Hitler's Cross, talks about one Christian church in Germany during World War II that was located near the train tracks which would carry the railroad cars filled with Jews of all ages to the concentration camps. Often these Jews would be transported on Sunday morning. And it was said that from inside their church, the believers, quote-unquote, could hear the screams of these poor souls as they passed by, knowing that many of them would be put to death as soon as they reached their destination. What did these Christians do? They sang their hymns louder so as to drown out the screams of the Jews. Folks, this is the kind of careless indifference that is the mark of many a self-righteous, self-centered churchgoer who professes to know Christ but in works denies him. And that will be no more true than during the tribulation period. Now, Jesus ends the parable with an important pronouncement. In verse 46, he says, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, the wicked, the goats, but the righteous into eternal life. The word everlasting, everlasting punishment, and the word eternal, eternal life, are the same word in the Greek, same word. Jesus is telling us that even as heaven is eternal, so is hell. So And I say that because 76% of people in America believe in heaven. Only 6% believe in a literal place called hell. But you know what? Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else. You know that? In fact, he talked about hell more than he talked about, listen, heaven or even love. 
Why did he talk about hell so much? Because he didn't want anyone to go there. And yet in today's church, very few pastors preach on hell anymore. In fact, I just read an article yesterday. I kept it. About how many pastors across America will not teach on these what's called controversial subjects, like hell. It's only controversial if you want to get around it. But won't teach on anything kind of negative because they want to keep people coming and the money flowing. They'll stand before God. Because of it, they want to keep things real positive. And as such, they focus today from the pulpit almost exclusively on the love of God while neglecting the righteousness, the justice, and the holiness of God. The result is that almost everyone today in our country views God as a benevolent, gray-haired, grandfatherly old gentleman who was too kind and loving to ever send anyone to such a horrible place like hell. Consequently, we now live in a society where there is, listen, no fear of God. There's no fear of consequences. There's no fear of coming judgment. Because after all, there is no hell. God is way too loving to ever punish anybody. So there's no fear of coming judgment. And as as Solomon said in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So there's no fear of God, no fear of coming judgment, no fear that someday there's going to come a day of reckoning where people are going to have to stand before God and give an account. That's all out the window today. And so consequently, there is no fear of evil. There's no hatred of evil, I should say. No fear of God equals no hatred of evil. And the result of that is lawlessness. As Jesus said what happened before his return. Lawlessness, what does that mean? Well, we have blatant disregard and disrespect for the law of God, the commandments of God. It's a sad thing today. And you get people saying, well, it's okay what you do. You know, in fact, they're calling evil good and good evil. So if you abort children, that's good. If you pick it against abortion, that's evil. Tell me we're not a sick society here. Tell me it's not sick that if you kill an endangered insect and they find out about it, I'll give you one example, something different than that. I I, I talked about this a few weeks ago. One of the uh, ushers came and said, where I work, he said, there is a nest where a, a, a mother bird is protecting her young, and so if you walk by the sidewalk to get into the building, she attacks you. So we wanted to kind of do something to get the bird out of there. So they called well, whatever government agency, I don't know, what, there's so many, to, to say, well, here's what we want to do, we want to move this bird because it's attacking people and it's hurting them. They say, don't touch that bird. It's a $250,000 fine, 10 years in prison. He asked the government, can I get money to kill my child in my womb? Oh, yeah, we'll pay for that. I'll tell you what, the Lord Jesus is coming, and he is not happy. And I'll tell you what, we as a nation better wake up quick. You talk about God judging nations through national, national calamities? There's some big ones coming if we don't repent quick. And Jesus is telling us here as we finish, and in many, many other places in the Gospels, that even as there is an eternal place of blessing for the righteous called heaven, there is also an eternal place of torment for the unrighteous called hell. It's a real place. I'll give you a couple of scriptures. Turn to Second Thessalonians 1 real quick. I'll just read this quickly. They're self-explanatory. Second Thessalonians 1, starting in verse 7, Paul is talking about the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. 
And he says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Punished with everlasting destruction. Revelation 14. In verse 9 we read, as John sees this vision of what is coming, he says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone, this will be the lake of fire, in the presence of his holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And listen, the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Well, not just those who worship the Antichrist, but all those who refuse to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But here's the good news. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him. Aren't you thankful that salvation comes through our believing? That we don't have to earn something, you know? I'm so glad the Lord didn't say, you know, salvation is for those who can climb the highest mountain, swim the deepest ocean, kill the, the seven-headed dragon and get the golden apple or whatever it is. You know, run a mile under four minutes or, you know, which leaves me out, that's for sure. Uh just that you believe. Whoever believes on him would not have to spend eternity in hell, but could spend eternity in heaven. I mean, if people go to hell, don't you dare blame God. It's not God's fault if people go to hell. He's reaching his arms out and saying, come to me. Yes, your forefathers, Adam and Eve, they brought sin into the human race and with it eternal punishment. But I sent my son into the human race to correct that. He lived the perfect life. He died on the cross to atone for your sins. Nobody need go to hell. I have provided a way for all to be saved. You got to come to me. Receive my son. And I will adopt you into my family. And you will have an inheritance waiting for you in heaven someday that will never fade away, that will never disappear. It will be yours forever. That's quite an offer. I pray that everyone in this room who has not accepted that offer already will do so today before you leave this place. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness and grace. That, Lord, you are such a loving, gracious God who loved us so much you didn't want us to go to hell forever, but sent your Son that we might have eternal life. And Father, you know the hearts of everyone in this room. You know those who know you, and you know those who do not know you. And we pray, Lord, for all those who do not know you today, who maybe think they know you, but they really don't, that, Lord, you will touch them, open their eyes. And, Lord, before the day is out, may they fall on their faces before you, repent of their sins, receive Jesus Christ in truth as Lord and Savior. And that, Lord, you would transform them and begin to bring forth fruit through them for your glory. Father, we thank you. We ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.